You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you, as usual, from Montecito, California. And today, I want to start out by reminding you once again about all of the great resources that you are missing out if you have not visited WealthFormula.com. There's a number of downloads and educational type resources there. In addition, that's where you go to sign up for other stuff like the Wealth Formula Network, which a lot of people have been talking about since our meeting and a number of people have joined. This is our inner group, our online private network, and it's where you know we let it all hang out, uh, no holes bar bi-weekly Zoom video calls, and uh, they usually go for about an hour and a half or more. And we also have a Facebook group there. And oh yeah, by the way, it starts out with a course featuring a lot of the really familiar names to you like Tom Wheelwright, Kenny McElroy, and a lot of the usual suspects in this alternative space that we have. By the way, if you are interested in joining Wealth Formula Network, go to wealthformularoadmap.com. But uh, as far as today's show, you know, last week I started out the show about talking about organic chemistry, and uh, it's interesting. I talked to some people who thought the analogy was a unique uh, and interesting perspective, but boy, it sure seems real to me. But, you know, organic uh, chemistry was en route to becoming a physician, and you have to be um, at the top of your class in college to get into medical school. At least you used to. I think it's the same now. It might even be worse. Then medical school itself is a pretty big commitment because remember all those people who uh, you were beating up on on the curve uh, in college well they're all gone then you're left with the guys and uh, gals who are at the top of the class they're in med school and you got a lot of work ahead of you to compete and stay above water and then of course I'm one of those crazies who added another seven years of residency training to my education starting with some neurosurgery, head and neck surgery, and uh, facial plastic surgery, blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. By the time you get done with all that training, you really do get an opportunity, though, to do one thing that very few people actually get to do, which is to master, sort of master, a body of knowledge, to have a broad you know, knowledge base of a topic, which is the human body. And I do think that that's a very unique element to medicine. It's probably the case in other fields as well, but it is pretty unique. And while medicine is always changing, of course, what we know about human physiology doesn't change that much these days, at least the basics. You know, the heart has to keep beating. Your brain needs to keep functioning to be alive. You know, it's it's better not to be obese. It's better not to smoke for all sorts of reasons. These things are probably ain't going to change much uh, in in the future here. And so you can make some predictions based on those types of things. You know, there's some beauty in knowing the consistencies of the human body, despite the fact that futuristic medicine is on the way, as you heard Martin Ford talk about in our uh, robots and AI episode. It's going to change the way we live, but the basic knowledge of form and function of the human body remains constant, and that makes it easier as a practitioner. Now, if you're a different kind of diagnostician, which is a diagnostician of the economy, also known as an economist, well, things are kind of a moving target, right? The rules are rapidly changing, and this has made it much easier, frankly, to predict the rhythm of the heart than the future pulse of the economy. And it all starts, in my view, from the Federal Reserve. It used to be that the United States Federal Reserve Bank had two mandates, to maximize employment and to stabilize prices. 
right? It typically did not respond to the whims of the financial markets. In other words, if the heart stopped on the New York Stock Exchange, stocks would get crushed. And there wouldn't be an immediate resuscitative effort by the federal government or the Fed. Now, the rule seems a little different, right? You know, you get a little scratch. You get a little scratch. You get immediately get whisked off to the emergency room. The Fed artificially suppresses interest rates and responds briskly to the very thought of any kind of downturn, right? It responds to what's going on in the stock market emboldening people to continue investing even during the pandemic when it made no sense to have sky-high asset prices. It just made no sense. But everybody, you know, they knew there was a new sheriff in town and not investing was a risk. The net result, in my view, is that whatever rules we played by in the past, they don't matter anymore. It's a free-for-all. Okay, we are living in times characterized by an artificial economy without natural cycles or anything else you could previously use to forecast its future. Now, let me be clear. I'm not imposing any kind of ideology here or crying for the good old days at all. I'm simply making an observation of the way I believe things actually are. You know, there was a recent episode on Wealth Formula Podcast with my friend Marin Katusa. I was a phenomenal investor in the natural resources sector, a guy I have a great deal of respect for. And Marin made the point that as investors, our job's not to be stuck in what way we wish things were, right? I'm an Austrian economist and uh, I show gold. And even though I'm in, you know, massive bull market, I'm going to keep doing that because that's what I believe. No, that's not what we do. We respond to the reality on the ground. That's what we're supposed to do. So it's a chaotic new economic paradigm. And given that, with emphasis on the word new, it's interesting to talk to somebody of what I would consider the OG of economics, the old guard, uh, Dennis Gartman. Dennis Gartman is famous for his Gartman letters, which he consistently wrote since the early 1970s until just recently. Really smart guy. You know, I may not, you may not completely agree with all that he has to say, but he is definitely a guy you want to listen to and his reasoning. And I thought, particularly given the fact that there's no rules this economy, to get on a diagnostician to ask how do you possibly diagnose an economy when all the rules have changed. So you're going to get to answer those questions when we come back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest and Wealth Formula podcast. Well, he's actually a pretty well-known guy in this uh, podcast ecosystem. His name is Dennis Gartman. Dennis is known, I mean, gosh, forever for the Gartman letter, uh, which he recently stopped doing. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. And currently serves as the University of Akron Endowment Chair. Dennis, welcome to Wealth Formula podcast. Thanks for having me on. You went to the bottom of the barrel, and there I was. <laughs> there you go. So I'm curious. First of all, the Gartman letter. I think uh, you started it in the 70s. Is that yeah. right? And I started in the late 1970s, did it for 35 years, retired December 31st of 2019. A little bit of Parkinson's disease made typing a little bit difficult, but I was proud of the fact that for 35 years, I missed a total of two days when I say two days, on July 4, I had to write because the clients in England, I've never gotten them to be able to celebrate July 4. The <laughs> clients over in Tokyo never never wanted to take the day off. So I missed two days in, in 35 years. I, I was there for every business day and pretty proud of that record. Wow. 
Fantastic. And now, endowment chair. How's uh, how's that going? When and are you a, a an alumnus of the University of Akron? Is that how this happened? Yeah, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Akron, so I'm the chairman of their university endowment, and I'm the oldest standing member of the board of directors of NC State's endowment uh, investment committee. I've been on that committee for about 15 years, and uh, proud of doing both works. It's it's really quite good, great, good deal of fun, and uh, it's rather interesting. Dennis, I have a lot of, of uh, you know, your take on the current economy will be fascinating uh, because yeah. it's a very unusual time. And before we start into sort of specifics, I am curious, as someone who wrote, who's been following this economy and missing only two business days since the, you know, early to mid-70s, how do you approach an economy like this now where it seems like you know, traditionally, somebody in your position could look back and say, here are the rules, and this is what's <laughs> happening, and this is what I can predict with some level based on what I know. These days, it seems like all the rules have changed, and they're constantly changing, and the Fed is, yes. the mandates are changing, where you might see in the past the Fed was preventing you know, had a mandate of employment and stabilization of prices. Now they won't even let the stock market drop. So how do you approach a market like that? Well, I guess the biggest thing is the fact that instantaneous information is so much more available to people and the ability to panic is so much more uh, available to people. The ability to misinterpret uh, economic data is so much more available to people. And I guess the, to me, the biggest change is the fact that the public is so egregiously, and I use that term carefully, is so egregiously involved in, in, in speculation. I, I in, in 35 or 40 years of being in the markets, have never seen this sort of rampant, overt, and I think ill-advised speculation on the part of the public. We have meme stocks going crazy. We have SPACs coming out everywhere. We have rework or we work being we reworked and, and coming public again after having been a total and complete failure. Uh, it's, these are unusual times and I'm actually glad I don't have to write every day. Well, you know, and even beyond the investors themselves, you know, when you look at the fed and, you know, their mandate changing the way it has, it seems you've gone from a a fairly, you know, hands-off approach to a very hands-on approach that sort of prevents, uh, the natural history of the economy from occurring the way maybe you would expect it to. Well, the, the, the Fed's mandate is being expanded, and, and I think improperly so. The, the Fed had always had the mandate originally to be involved with keeping inflation to a low level. Then the mandate was expanded to keeping unemployment to a low level. Now we have the Fed's mandate expanding to being concerned about global warming c- climate change, which I think makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. How the Fed is going to be responsible for or do anything about global warming climate change is really quite beyond me. And what bothers me is that with the mandate being changed and being widened, one has to wonder where the next widening of the mandate is going to go to. Are they going to be responsible for uh, education around the world? Are they going to be responsible for racism around the world? I, I find that disconcerting, dismaying, and, and ill-advised, to say the very least. It also creates a level of unpredictability, I would say, right, in terms of what to expect when you make predictions. I think the Fed has tried to go out of their way and Mr. Powell has tried to go out of his way. And I think it, it's led to problems, but I think he's had to say, we're going to lead the, the public and to understand what we're attempting to do. When I first got in the business in the 1970s, 
you watched what the Fed funds rate was overnight, whether the Fed came in and did match sales or, or repos with one or two basis points difference. You had to guess what the Fed was doing. And I think that that was actually a better way of going about it. Now we have the Fed with a widening mandate and, and Mr. Powell has to come out and explain what the Fed is attempting to do. Sometimes he's wrong. Clearly he's been wrong with the idea that inflation was a transitory circumstance. Clearly that is far more uh, empirical, far more uh, firmly set in, in, in the environment and, and likely to continue for a long period of time. I think the Fed has a very difficult job and I'm glad I'm not the Fed chairman. I want to talk a little bit, Dennis, about some of the things that are currently going on as we, you know, as we leave this, I don't know if we've really left it, but as we are uh, feeling the repercussions of probably the the deepest parts of the uh, pandemic economy, inflation. Tell us what's going on right now for people who may be not following it and where you see it uh, headed. Yeah, let's tell, first of all, let's understand that Mr. Powell has said that, that inflation that, that is now extant is, is basically being created by the supply chain problems that are all over the world. And there's not a, it's not just a problem in, in L.A. And, and, uh, and Long Beach. It's a problem here on the East Coast. It's a problem on the, in, in Savannah. It's a problem at Rotterdam. It's a problem in, in, in England. It's a problem all over the world. The supply chain is problematic, no question about it. But that's not the reason why we have an inflation in the United States. That's a temporary circumstance. What bothers me is I'm, a, I'm an old guard, straight down the line, monetarist when it comes to economics. And as uh, Professor Friedman, Dr. Friedman once said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. It depends upon what the central bank and the predominant, obviously the, the, the predominant central bank in the world is the Fed. The Fed has expanded the supply of its reserves astronomically. We've taken the, the adjusted monetary base from, call it $2, billion, $2 trillion five or six years ago, $8 trillion now. The Fed has been buying treasuries and agency securities for its own account, creating money out of thin air, and creating the inflation that is now extant and is going to be even worse two years, three years, and four years from now, unless the monetary authorities take a, a far less expansionary perspective. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. So, I'm fearful about rising inflationary pressures. It has been predicated upon the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of China, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of France have all been expansionary beyond anything that I think is reasonable and rational. It's going to give rise to inflationary problems that are going to be excellent with us for a long period of time coming, coming forth. No question about that in my mind. Dennis, I'm curious too, why... I mean, some people look back to what happened in uh, the the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 and say, well, we had quantitative easing then, didn't really result in any significant inflation. Why didn't it? And how is it different now? There's usually a delay, first of all. And, and, and let us, let's understand the Fed, I think, did exactly the right thing in 2007, 2008 and 2009, because the housing circumstances, the building circumstances had collapsed so dramatically, deflationary pressures were extant everywhere. And prior to that time, the Fed had not been expansionary at all. The Fed began to be expansionary in its policies in 2008, 9, 10, 11, probably overstayed their, their, their welcome, have remained that way for the past decade. And now you have an economy that is really quite strong, other than the pandemic circumstances. And we're bouncing back rather dramatically from even the pandemic and not just here in the United States, but around the world, we see things going better than, than they had been a year and a half ago. And given that, given the supply chain circumstances that do prevail and are indeed causing problems, 
It is a different world now than it was in 2007, 2008, 2009. And the monetary authorities have been expansionary far longer than they probably should have. Therein lies the, the, the rationale for inflation this time, as opposed to what happened in 2007, 2008, and 2009. Those were deflationary times. These are now inflationary times. The Fed did exactly what it should have done in 07, 08, 09, and 10. But they've overstayed their welcome a bit too long now at this point. And I think given their their propensity not to change policy dramatically, they, they will temper, they will run off, they will stop buying as, as many treasury securities and agencies as they have been. But are they going to allow their monetary aggregates, are they going to allow the adjusted monetary base to actually decline in price? Not so. And that money is going to continue to circulate. The, the, the other problem is, Money has not been used as far as velocity is concerned. You need to turn money over much more rapidly than we have been. And the velocity of money has halved since about 2007, 2008, and 2009. And given the fact that now it appears to me that velocity is quietly, finally, slowly beginning to turn from a declining environment to a rising environment, given that circumstance and given the amount of aggregate growth that has, been, has occurred as far as the aggregates are concerned, that's going to give rise to inflation. So you had deflationary pressures going on at one time. Now you have inflationary pressures instead. This time is indeed different. Let's assume uh, we're looking at, you know, five, six percent. Uh, I'm putting words in your mouth. I don't know how how bad you think it's going to get. Those, those are words I'll take. Yeah. Five or six percent over the next few years. Yes. Um, you know, in, in my my listeners are a bunch of retail investors. Right. And so. When you hear about that kind of inflation, I think a lot of us think, well, that to me means, well, I should just be invested in something. Maybe it's equity markets. Maybe it's uh, real estate because everything that is going to rise in prices, I just need to make sure that I'm on the train. Is that a logical way of thinking? And if, if not, why not? It's been the logical way of thinking for the past several years. It's been the proper way of thinking for the past several years. What bothers me is it is now so universally accepted, so utterly embraced by everyone that uh, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder what happens when everyone is already heavily invested in the markets and who is the last buyer to be a buyer? Who is the last buyer to come in and take prices higher? I worry about the fact that, uh, as I've said in many other instances, Joseph Kennedy got worried about stock prices when his shoe shine boy came to him with stock tips. I start to see things like Robinhood expanding as dramatically as it has, SPACs expanding as dramatically as they are, meme stocks being embraced by one and all, and the public utterly, I'm, I, as I was telling somebody the other day, my email is filled every morning with people explaining to me why I should be involved in trading options, why I should be involved in trading stocks, why I should be involved in meme stocks. And the, the, the public's awareness of the stock market is, is, to me, a bit frightening and too many people are involved. So it, it reminds me too much of, of speculative, enthusiastic environs in times past that always end up in, in tears. I, I, I don't doubt for a minute that stock prices can go higher. I think you're in almost a panic, parabolic type of atmosphere right now, but this will end badly within the next year or two. Given that, where do you think people ought to be? I mean, I don't know if it's an investment advice per se, but I'm just curious what your take is. How does this all play out? You say it plays out badly, obviously. You know, if you're in oil, if you, you know, if you're in commodities, if you're in uh, real estate or in the stock market, you know, what's safe haven in your view? 
there are no safe havens. The only thing you can do is take safety precautions. And you, you have to, you, you have no choice. I mean, the fear of being left behind is, 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 a, is a monstrous psychological battle to be fought. Yep. You have to be long in the stock market. You have no choice, but you, the, the only way to do it is either buying, buying stocks. And I think you buy less, uh, lower beta, higher dividend paying stocks. Energy stocks are, are to me, probably the, the one place that is of some safe uh, haven of some sort. But you want to buy stocks with puts underneath them. To, to protect yourself, you want to sell calls above them to, to give you some income. The notion that we've seen a Tesla go parabolic in the last 50, 48 hours, to me, is frightening to say the very least. It makes no sense. But you have to err upon the side of still being bullish to the stock market with protection. You can also use futures to hedge yourself if you need to, but I think buying puts is probably the best place to be. I think you want to own gold. And there's no question in my mind that you want to own gold rather than, than cryptocurrencies. I'll be blunt. I have never understood cryptocurrencies. It's for younger people than I am. It's for higher tech people than I will ever be. I'll leave other people wiser than I and more speculatively involved than I in, in the trade in the cryptos. But I think you want to own gold in an, in an inflationary environment. So I think you want to work upon the side of owning stocks with, that pay good dividends and gold to hedge yourself and puts on those stocks at the same time. I think that's the place to be. I'm not sure there's any safe haven as in the past, there might have gone. You might have gone, been able to go to the debt market, the the Treasury Securities debt market, as a safe haven. I don't think you can go there anymore. You know, as you see this play out, and you have, I mean, first of all, I guess one question is how, when you do see things go south, what does that look like? And then the next question is a corollary to that is, in the past, Fed, the Fed has had some dry powder to yes. combat that. So obviously asking you to look into a crystal ball here, but how do you see this playing out? First thing, you have to be able to get, the Fed needs dry powder and the dry powder it has is almost non-existent. However, it can continue to be as expansionary as it wishes to be. And if, it's, if it does so, by continuing to buy treasury shares, which I think they should stop immediately, but that's the only place they can go to. They can't, they can't allow, they can't take interest rates, interest rates at the short end any lower than zero. I hope we don't go to negative numbers. It's a disastrous experiment in Europe. Um, so I think at this point, you have to remember that in a bear market, and a bear market will come, whether it comes next week, next year, next month, next year, the next bear market is, is around the corner somewhere. And you have to remember that he or she who loses the least is going to be the winner. At the University of Akron in the endowment, I've actually moved us in February. I, I, I had to strong arm, for lack of a better term, the other members of the committee to to reduce the, our exposure to the equities market. We took it down by about three percent and bought three percent gold. We're a little bit ahead on that trade, uh, and the, and the operative words here are a little bit. We're just marginally ahead, but I'm comfortable with that position. I think that's a decently. My propensity shall be to increase the gold position a bit in the next six months or so and decrease our exposure to the equities market a bit in the next six months or so. I want to be more safety oriented. Do I want to go to the government bond market, however? Now with the, the, uh, the, the 10-year Treasury yielding, what, 10.65%, I think you might see in the next two months, you might, you might take the Treasury, the 10-year Treasury down to 1.35 or 1.45. But I think over the course of the next five or six years, 10-year Treasuries have to get back to 4 or 5%. And even that will be less than the, the inflation rate that we'll have at the time. And you'll, you'll be at negative... Uh, uh, really, real yields. So you have to take interest rates over the next five years higher. Over the next two or three months, they may go down just a tad, not much. 
Uh, looking at some of the current uh, Biden legislation, specifically, <laughs> <laughs> is it is it is it um, uh, you know we're talking about a lot of spending, right? And obviously yeah. that that ends up. Um, increasing the likelihood of the uh, inflation th- uh, thesis. Specifically in that, though, I'm curious about one thing, which is uh, the transitioning from fossil fuels to green. Now, Biden uh, Stupid. Yeah, Biden wants to cut those fossil fuels without necessarily having a green energy uh, you know, plan to immediately replace it. Uh, perspective on that? I think it's probably without question the stupidest idea I've heard in a long period of time. Doing away with fossil fuels, 100 years from now, we will do away with fossil fuels. 100 years from now, we'll, we'll either have nuclear or fusion, one of the two. Uh, will green, will windmills and, and sun energy replace fossil fuels anytime in, in my lifetime? Well, I'm 71 years old, so I'm in the, I'm in the ninth inning of my, my term, but that's not going to happen. And I think the stupidest thing that we've seen is, is delaying, denying doing damage to the fossil fuel industry in the United States, and at the same time asking OPEC if they would pick up their production of crude oil. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. It is, it is foolishness of the first and worst order, and it, and, it, and it has to stop. The problem is it's not going to stop. Green makes no sense to me at all. Nuclear makes eminent good sense. Experimentation and, 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 and research into fusion makes eminent good sense. But knowing that fossil fuels are still going to be the dominant fuel for the next 25 or 30 years, People just have to get used to that fact. They're not, they, they don't wish to. And our college students and college professors seem to think otherwise, but they're wrong. It seems to me um, when it comes to the green issue, like you said, you said eventually this is going to happen, right? And the reality is that at some point, economically, it'll make more sense. But the problem is trying to force it. That seems to be the fundamental problem. The, when we're not quite ready for the transition, rather than just letting it happen, trying to push it through. And that, to me, sounds like a catastrophe. Waiting the worst thing that we've done is, is, is deny and denigrate the, the efficacy, the, the superiority, the, the, the decent, the, the goodness of, of nuclear power. We should, be, we should be working harder to have more nuclear facilities in the United States than we have. Instead, we're... we're refusing to build new ones and, and letting the oldest ones uh, die, that's ill-advised. The French seem to have a much better opinion of it, much better man- methodology of, of administering their electricity programs through nuclear power. We in the United States seem to be going exactly the opposite way. And at the same time, we're trying to put windmills everywhere around the country, which are you know, killing birds and looking bad and denying pipelines and denying access to uh, crude oil and natural gas. I, I, I commonly talk about the fact that I, one of the funniest maps you'll ever see, you go to the web and look at the number of drilling rigs on the border of Pennsylvania and New York. Uh, in New York, you're not allowed to drill in, in, in New York for crude oil or natural gas in the Marcellus Shale. There are hundreds of, uh, of, uh, of wells drilled on the southern border of New York and Pennsylvania. And, the, and the, they will, the drillers will argue that they're not drilling in New York. Well, of course they are. There's the Marcellus Shale should be the, the one of the dominant sources of energy in the United States, especially given the fact that it's here on the East Coast, and yet we're denying its, its viability. It makes no sense. If it weren't so sad, it would be funny. 
I want to ask you about one more thing, which is obviously where a lot of my listeners' head is, is in the real estate market. This has been an extraordinarily hot real estate market. Um, for us real estate investors, this has been absolute gold, even through the pandemic. Uh, it's just been extraordinary. Obviously, a lot of this is linked to cheap money. And I'm curious where you think uh, you know, the real estate market ends up. Do interest rates in the ne- in the foreseeable future, can they possibly go up when the Fed is, you know, completely involved with uh, artificial suppression? I mean, it's ridiculous to think that you can buy a, that you can buy a $400,000, $500,000 house with a mortgage of less than two or 3%. That That's nonsense. The mortgages need to be back at five and 6% and to be, to be viable and, and, and and on a long-term duration. They're going to go there in the next five or six years. The problem shall be that it's going to put downward pressure upon people who just bought their $400,000 or $500,000 house with an income of maybe $80,000 predicated upon 2 to 3% 30-year fixed rate mortgages. That's It's utter and complete nonsense, and it will stop when it stops. It doesn't make any sense. It should have stopped two or three years ago. It'll eventually do so. I think real estate is is quite honestly, to be avoided at, 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 at best. I, I think the interest rate rise that's going to be over the course of the next five or six years. And again, I think at the short run in the next two months, interest rates may go down a little bit, but over the course of the next five or six years, interest rates have to go up rather dramatically. I remember when I got my first mortgage on my house 25 years ago, I paid 9%. Wow. That's a little too high. Five mm-hmm. or 6% is probably more rational and reasonable. And if you get to 30-year mortgages at five or 6%, that $500,000 house that you think is worth $500,000 is suddenly worth $350,000. I guess one, you know, one question follow up on that though, is, is how do the rates go down? I mean, doesn't the fed, haven't they positioned themselves by buying bonds sort of at will to artificially suppress as long as they wish to do so? I mean, isn't that, I mean, how, how do the rates go up? The Fed has been buying treasuries and agencies for the last several years. Yeah. I, I think they should stop. Maybe they don't stop. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't even stop. And maybe they even become even more aggressive. Maybe they suppress rates for another five, ten, fifteen years. I, I to me, that's nonsense. To me, it it seems to be utterly and completely impossible and improbable and ill-advised. But can it happen? It can happen. If so, I'll be wrong. Do I think it would make sense for them to do so? No, I think it would make sense for them to quietly stop the purchase of treasury securities and agencies, quietly allow their tre- their, their adjusted monetary base, their, their, their assets to run off slowly but laboriously over the course of the next 5, 10, 15 years, and allow interest rates at the long end of the curve to quietly go higher, getting the 10-year yield back to 4 or 5%, maybe 6% in, in the 10 years, getting the 30-year back to 5 or 6 or 7% maybe in the course of the next 10 years. Do I think that that's what's going to happen? I hope that's what happens. Do I think it's going to happen? I have no earthly idea. <laughs> I think we're in a very untoward and very ill-advised and rather frightening place that I don't have any idea how we're going to get out. Do you, do you foresee, Dennis, at some point, yeah, this 10, 15 years, some sort of, you know, I guess the type of global reset you ever see every 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, do, I mean, it's sort of, you know, I guess a little dystopian view of what's going on maybe, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's it, it's sort of just where we are, we are headed. Do you see that? Buck, let's hope that that's not, let's hope that that's not what happens 
let's fear that that's what might happen. I think there's a 15 to 20 percent probability that it could happen. I hope that it doesn't happen for my for my two daughters sakes. I hope that doesn't happen. But can it happen? Yes. And do I think that as long as the monetary authorities continue along the path that they are, that's what's going to happen. Let us hope they come to their senses and slow down this aggressive expansion of the monetary aggregates that has been with us now for almost a decade. Let us hope they they, they find some uh, lesser active perspective on their part. And uh, what I really fear is that Mr. Powell will not be uh, renominated to the, the, the chairmanship of the Fed. He's not the best, but he's the best that they talked about. I fear that he might have to be forced out and Lyle Brainerd becomes the next chairman. And if so, she's even more expansionary than, than he has been. That, that is my great fear at this point. Dennis, without the letter, how can people follow your work now? I do uh, Fox Business on, on Monday mornings with, this, with my, my old friend Stuart Varney, which is always fun. I do Fox Business on 7 o'clock Tuesday mornings with uh, Maria Bartiromo at, at 7 a.m. And I'm on there every week. And on uh, alternate uh, Monday mornings at 5.15 and 5.45 in the morning on Bloomberg Radio. So that's probably the best place they can hear what I have to say or on a podcast such as yours, Buck. Dennis, thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. This has been uh, very eye-opening. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to doing it again at some time in the future. And uh, as I used to say when I wrote my newsletter, good luck and good trading. <laughs> Thanks again. Well, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. It's always fun to hear guys from, you know, the OG, the old guard, uh, Dennis Gartman, Gartman Letters. He's uh, really a legend in this space. He's worth listening to. He's been right many times. Like, I think the big difference in my view when I listen to the, a lot of these guys now is that, though, again, emphasizing the rules have changed. We don't know what's going to happen. Dennis says the same thing, right? And at the end of the day, I think the take home for me was that we are in a bull market and there's a high probability of losing out if you don't participate. And that's really, really important to remember. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who have sat out, I mean, big time syndicators sitting out since like 2016, 15, right? And they were waiting for hell to break loose. Never happened. Pandemic came, still didn't happen. Now we're in the next bull market. It's, uh, it's hard to predict. So you don't want to miss out. There's no doubt uh, what Dennis says is true about, you know, trying to hedge a little bit as well. And so I do encourage you to think about how you want to do that. But, but good stuff. And I hopefully you enjoyed it. It's great to have a, a guy like Dennis, who I respect a great deal on the show. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, this is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.